Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. Genesis chapter 4, and we're going to look at just a couple verses because um, some of these verses are so important and are loaded with information that we have to kind of get through because there's a lot behind the phrase uh, that you'll see. And kind of what we're doing right now is we're looking in in the end of chapter 4 and we're getting into chapter 5. What God is trying to do through Moses is show us how important uh, family lineage is. But he's also showing us the seed line, obviously, that he's going to use to bring the Messiah. And how he's going to preserve that seed line because Cain's seed line has gone crazy. There are believers in Cain's line, no doubt. But for the most part, that line is going to... uh, continue on, and it's even with us today, where the mass of humanity follows its father, Cain, whereas the minority of human beings will follow Seth and Seth's line, which is belief in God. And we're going to look at the distinguishing marks of that. And we looked last week of the negativity of what Cain brought to his family line and how negative things Unbiblical things are passed on from generation to generation. We even saw last week that we can pass things on through our DNA. If we don't solve a problem in our lives like alcoholism or drug abuse or whatever it is, you will actually pass on the DNA structure to the next generation and they too will struggle in those areas. Whether that's anger or whatever it is, it will get passed on DNA. But we found out if you fix it, The DNA structure will fix it in the next generation, and they will not have that struggle. So it's amazing how we're wired, how DNA plays a part in it. But again, a lot of comes down to what we're teaching. Before I get into the lesson, what I handed out is a thing called, which law are you passing down or are we passing down? You should have received this from our ushers as you walked in. I'm just going to make a brief reference to this. I just gave this out so just you can see common things that are passed on. One of the big things, as you can see, the title of this is family of origin or my law versus God's law. And I contrasted the two out. These are kind of just the most common things that are typically pushed on us as individuals. And what we mean by this is there's not only sometimes sinful traits that are passed down or good traits that are passed down, but what happens is families develop their own family law or their own way of doing life that sometimes doesn't match the Bible or is in contradiction to the Bible. Sometimes they they do match. But what you start realizing is people adopt what their family teaches them rather than the Scripture. Your first introduction to right and wrong is going to come from your family. And a lot of times you'll see that some families have laws that are not found in Scripture. But people will adopt that because as children... You don't think as a child that mom and dad could ever steer you wrong. And so you just simply follow their lead. And you start finding out as you get older, wait a second, I don't understand why mom and dad were doing certain things like that. And you realize that sometimes you adopt those things into your own life. And if you don't catch it, you actually will pass that family law down to your children. And then you will see that passed on to your grandchildren. And it's just things that, like, hey, where did that come from? And it just keeps getting passed down. So, for instance, you know, just a couple of things, and and then we'll get to the text. Just as an example, uh, I'll just run through this real quick. Intelligence, academics, wealth, fame, or the keys to life. Rich and famous people are smart and successful. Maybe that's what your family taught. Well, the Bible teaches the exact opposite. There are a lot of intelligent fools. There are a lot of foolish, rich people. There's a lot of foolish famous people, right? The real issue is biblical wisdom is the key to life. We follow God. Or for instance, take another one. I cannot change. Maybe you were taught growing up, people don't change. Well, the biblical model teaches that people do change in Christ. If they cooperate and use the tools that God provides, they can change and they can be set free. But again, a lot of people have this fatalistic look that a a leopard can't change its spots. And so they go in life like that. Or how about the one underneath that? God rejects me because I'm so bad. I can never be forgiven due to my behavior. A lot of people are taught that they've done so much that God will never 
forgive them, so they don't have anything to do with God. But as you know, God will forgive them and can forgive them, but they're, they've never were taught like that from their family. Or uh, how about this? Loving people without consequences causes people to change. Uh, no, no. Giving consequences and limitations in a loving manner to a person is what elicits change. But people think that they can love somebody and not give them any limitations or consequences and they're, they're going to change. They won't. They simply won't. And they, they keep beating their head against that. Or how about this? Be true to yourself. Follow your heart. That's crazy. The heart is desperately wicked, right? You'll hear that in movies. You'll, but families will teach their, their, their folks that, uh, this, their kids this. Or how about this? Uh, don't ever go against the family. That sounds like the godfather, uh, right? <laughs> yes, right. There are people like that, that you simply don't go against the family. Uh, protect members of my, the family, even if they are wrong. I mean, you could have family members that rob in banks every day, and that family will protect that individual. Well, it's not his fault. He's got this issue. He's ill, and that's why he robs banks. And it's like, are you serious? You're going to cover up for that? But yeah, people will do that. But what you start realizing, Jesus says, I must be the priority, not your family. Your family comes second to Jesus. Following Jesus and his principles are the key. A couple more. People will say, I just couldn't resist temptation. And in their family, no one can resist temptation. It just gets too strong for them. What does the Bible say? No temptation will overcome you. God will provide a way out. He limits the temptation based on who you are. He knows what you can take as far as temptation. And this is the, the real famous one that, that always needs to be corrected. They'll say, God won't give me more than I can handle. And they misuse a passage. He won't give you more temptation than you can handle. But will he give you sometimes more than you can handle? Absolutely. That's necessary sometimes to break us, to humble us, and to get us to wake up. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians actually mentions that they had been so slammed by the circumstances that they nearly died. That's giving more than he could take. And he admits that. And so you'll see like Job, he'll be giving more than he can take. Or other people in the scripture be giving more than they can take. Why? To wake them up. To to get them to uh, get out of the stupor, the spiritual stupor that they're in. So just things like that I wanted to give you out there. These are just random things that people deal with sometimes in their family. But again, think about this. What is your family's law? What are your family's 10 commandments? What have you been taught that doesn't match the Bible? And that's what you have to work through. Okay. So what you're going to look at now is a simple phrase that's, it, we're, we're in the line of Seth, a simple phrase will be used. And this simple phrase that you're, you're going to unpack is loaded. It is a loaded term. And it means a lot. We're going to spend the whole time trying to unpack this term. But here's what it is. We all want to pass on God's ways, God's laws, God's principles to our kids and grandkids. Everyone wants to do that. We do that, obviously, by teaching them the truth, teaching them theology, the proper way of understanding the Trinity, uh, the dual nature of Christ, the atonement, all that's involved in that. Eschatology and all these different subjects we want to pass on to our kids. Okay. But this phrase is an indication sometimes that this doesn't get passed on sometimes. We pass on the theology and we... we we want to make sure our kids are saved, and that's fine, but we sometimes end there. This phrase will show you that there's more to it than that. That, yes, we want our kids saved, but there has to be something else beyond that. And beyond that, obviously, in discipleship and sanctification, which typically is ignored. Most churches are just preaching salvation messages Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and never teach believers how to go on in their walk with the Lord. That critical step of discipleship, maturity, has to be taught. If it is not taught to this next generation, as we're seeing now, rank apostasy is going to happen. Rank defection from the Christian faith is happening because... Parents, grandparents worried about the kids getting saved. They got them saved. 
or whatever. They, you know, they accepted the Lord and they're, okay, I'm done. And at that point, nothing as far as discipleship happened after that. Nothing as far as spiritual maturity happened after that. Because everything you're going to study today is linked to spiritual maturity. And so one of the big issues we have to get across to our kids is this concept of hardcore spiritual maturity, which is grossly neglected in North America. It is not just simply enough just to say, yes, I've accepted Christ, now leave me alone. If a person leaves like that, now they're saved and everything, but because they're not growing, they're subject to all kinds of things Satan will throw their way to get them off track. So what Satan understands how the game is being played, and please understand this, what Satan will try to do to us is say, fine, you got saved and everything, but I'm going to make you useless. I can't take your salvation away, but I can make a Christian useless. And that's what he's doing to a lot of people. That's what he's doing to a lot of believers. Why do you think we've lost the culture war? A lot of Christians are scratching their heads saying, what happened? What happened? How did we lose America? Because we're not coming back. I just hope you understand that. With all that's happening, don't think we're going to recapture something back. Um, short of a miracle, but basically I'm, I'm waiting for the rapture. But nonetheless, you're not going back to them putting prayer back in school or uh, saying, hey, LGBT movement's wrong. They're not going to do that. It's over. We've lost the culture war, and we have to accept that. Why did we lose the culture war? Because so many Christians were useless in the fight. That's what happened. They couldn't fight. They had their fire insurance, but they couldn't fight because there was nothing in their tank. And this is what this passage is going to teach. Now, let's, let's move into uh, chapter 4, uh, verse 25, and kind of unpack this a little bit, okay? And it says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. So this is to replace Abel who was murdered by Cain, right? So Seth, his name means substituted, appointed. Basically, it's referring to a new beginning. It's showing Eve and Adam's faith that God is going to continue to deliver that seed promise. And, and though here's a new child that's going to carry the seed line. Now, again, she, she had multiple kids, uh, more than Cain and Abel and Seth. But she realizes there's something different about Seth. And through his line, it would be traced to Abraham and through Abraham and then David and, and then eventually the Messiah, this will be the beginning of the seed line. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. So this idea that she realizes that the seed line is going to continue through this individual, Seth. Okay, so Seth starts out. And it's in verse 26, it says, and as, and as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Now, this is interesting. He named a mortal frailty. Now, imagine having your kid be born, so I'm going to name him mortal frailty. I mean, just, but what, what, was, what was he doing? Seth understood, and again, he's in the seed line. That man has a problem. He has a sin problem. And that sin problem is making him mortally frail and will eventually kill him physically. So he understands, dying you shall die. He learned that from mom and dad. And he's passing this on, which is what you're seeing. He's passing on the truth about God and the truth about the situation, okay? Um, and then here's the phrase that, that we have to understand. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. And that's what we have to unpack. Most people, when they read this, they gloss over it and they say, ah, it's at that point people started getting saved. Nope, that's not what that phrase means. It means they're already saved. This phrase, call on the name of the Lord, can only be said by believers first. Okay? It's a Hebrew phrase. It's Hebraism. You'll see this phrase all through the New Testament. In fact, 
it takes the New Testament to unpack a lot of this. And it has multiple nuances, by the way. But again, what it's trying to say at this point in time in human history, that Cain and his line go off and humanity, that part of humanity is separating from God. They're doing their own thing. They even start their own religions to their own false gods and their own ziggurats and towers and whatnot to these false deities. But this remnant that believes in Yahweh has started something. And they're starting to call on the name of the Lord, which is a issue of discipleship, which is an issue of spiritual maturity, not one of belief. The indication that they call the name of the Lord already indicates that they're saved. But there's a small remnant that's starting to do this. We're part of that small remnant as well. But we must understand what this phrase means. Since only believers can do this, let me, let me start giving you a couple of examples of this in the Old Testament in reference to Israel, which is, we have to understand from the point of view from Israel's standpoint, what this passage means. So let me show you Joel chapter 2, verse 32. And it says, And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Saved from what? This is not referring to saved from hell. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be deliverance. What deliverance? As the Lord has said among the remnant whom the Lord calls. So let's keep that up there and understand the context of this passage in Joel. This passage refers to the deliverance of Israel from the Antichrist, physically. So the so. Uh, those who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved is not a reference to their eternal salvation, but is a, a reference to temporal deliverance from wrath. Particularly the Antichrist, obviously. He's about to wipe them out. Israel must do two things in order for Jesus to come back. First, they must believe in him. They've already done this in context in eschatology. Uh, in Zechariah 12, they will have already called, uh, or sorry, believed on him three days before he comes back. So the, the sequence is this. Israel gets saved as a nation. And then the second thing they must do is call upon the name of the Lord to be delivered so the sequence is belief first and then calling on the name of the Lord for physical salvation. Rescue us from the Antichrist. And that's the context of Joel. Hence, notice he uses the thing, call on the name of the Lord. It's defining to us that this is secondary after salvation. And so they'll basically what Israel will finally do is request Jesus come back and physically save them from the Antichrist. And that's what he will do. Once they do that, that's the second coming. And so we see this from eschatology that there's a twofold aspect here. So anyway, basically what you're seeing here in Joel chapter 2, it's invoking the aid of God to help them be delivered. Now, this is interesting. Now, I want you to move into the New Testament. I want you to think about a few things. So many people misunderstand the book of Acts. It's a, a, a transitional book. And so, like in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter will go in front of Israel and tell them, repent and be baptized. And the Church of Christ has a field day on that one. They say, see, you have to be baptized in order to be saved. No, they misinterpret it, but a lot of other believers don't know how to fend that off. What is Peter trying to do? Why does he tell Israel to repent and be baptized? Because baptism for the Jew signaled confession and calling upon the name of the Lord to escape temporal deliverance, uh, temporal judgment. Here's the question. What temporal judgment was Israel under? Well, according to Matthew chapter 12, Israel 
had rejected their own Messiah, as you know, and the religious leaders of Israel say that we reject Jesus of Nazareth based on our interpretation of his works. And his works signal to us that he does things by the power of Beelzebub. So it's not coming from God. He's demon-possessed, and we reject him. At that point, boom, everything goes into effect. They commit what's called the unpardonable sin. They commit blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and that's a historical sin that a believer cannot commit today. It's an historical nationalistic sin. Okay, at that point, in Luke 21, Jesus will explain what will happen to Israel. That Israel will be surrounded, Jerusalem will be destroyed. It's part of the judgment of committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now, individuals could escape this by coming to faith in Messiah and identifying with him. But if they did not identify with him in confession or through baptism, they too would die in the physical punishment, the physical judgment of Israel, which came in 70 AD, 40 years later. 70 AD is the temporal judgment of wrath for Israel, that first generation of rejecting the Messiah. Now, interesting enough, when you read the, the Jewish epistles, 1 Peter, for instance, chapter 3, I believe it is, he'll put a part in there, and most people gloss over it, about being baptized. And he'll say, you guys got to get baptized uh, for good conscience sake. And you're thinking, why is he making this an issue? Because Jewish believers refused to be baptized. Do you know why? Because they were afraid of Jewish persecution, of identifying with Jesus of Nazareth. And because baptism signaled their public identification with him, they simply wouldn't be baptized. So you had a bunch of believers, Jewish believers, who refused to be baptized because they didn't want to identify. And so Peter admonishes them, hey, you got to get baptized. And they knew if they got baptized, they would be cut off from the Jewish community. No one would do business with them. And in fact, they would be persecuted and kicked out of the synagogue. So there's a lot there. So understanding that calling on the name of the Lord is linked to confessing Jesus as Lord and identifying with him publicly. Now, look at this passage in Acts chapter 22, verse 16. Follow me. And now, why are you waiting? This is about Paul's, Paul's uh, testimony, okay? Uh, Paul has given his testimony, and he's telling them what happened to him. Paul was saved on the road of Damascus, as you recall. How was Paul saved? Because people say, well, they only read the book of Acts, and they say, well, you know, Jesus appeared to him, but how, where was the transaction where the gospel was given to Paul? Paul says in Galatians 1 that Jesus himself gave him the gospel. That's how Paul got saved. Paul got saved on the road of Damascus, according to Galatians chapter 1. But look what happens here in the book of Acts. And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Calling on the name of the Lord is said to Paul by Ananias. This is a different Ananias than Ananias and Sapphira. You recall, he has his domestic experience. He gets saved, but then he's taken to Ananias' house. Ananias then, in Paul's recounting this, told him, get up and be baptized. And look what he says, wash away your sins calling on the name of the Lord. Look how all of them are connected. Now, the Church of Christ has a field day with this one because they say, see, you guys, you have to be baptized in order to be saved. They don't understand the context. Paul needed to publicly identify with the Messiah and what sins would be washed away after he did that. The sin of national rejection of the Messiah by Israel. That's what. That's the particular sins he needed to have cleansed and would only be forgiven if he would publicly identify with the Messiah, hence by being baptized, calling on the name of the Lord, publicly identifying with them. That's what each individual Jew needed to do in the first century. Now, you and I are, are removed from that 
But the principle still applies. We're not under temporal judgment per se of, of 70 AD, but that's what they were under. And individual Jews escaped that by publicly identifying with him by calling on the name of the Lord. So we start realizing, wait, there's a lot more here. So let's start bringing it to us, okay? We're not under the judgment of 70 AD. They were, they needed to identify. But look at this, look what was happening in Jesus' day. This is John chapter 12, verse 42. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. In the story, they believed in him. But look what happened. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him or publicly identify with him. Why? He tells us, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. Were these people saved? Yes, it says they believed. But they wouldn't confess him publicly. Why? Being put out of the synagogue means no one's going to do business with you. You're going to lose your livelihood. They didn't want that to happen. Look at the the blind man situation in John chapter 9. Notice what his parents do and what John reports. And they asked them saying, this is after the healing of the blind man. Remember they put him on trial? Is this your son? They asked the parents. Who, say, uh, who, uh, who you say was born blind, how then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but by what means he now sees, we do not know. They're lying. They lie. They know exactly who healed their son. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. They, why? He is of age, ask him. So they put, put it off on him. He will speak for himself. I know what they're up to, and you do too. His parents said these things, so John tells you the truth, said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. There's your answer. A bunch of Jews actually believed in Jesus, but would not publicly identify with him. They were what we call silent believers, secret agents, so to speak, if you want to say. They simply would not identify with the Lord. Now I think you're starting to understand that they started in Genesis calling upon the name of the Lord is starting to tell you that they started publicly identifying with Yahweh, which brings us to our first point of understanding this concept. To call on Christ, and this is what we have to teach our kids and grandkids, to call on Christ for believers means to, number one, publicly identify with him, to confess him publicly in our lives. The game now that's being played is for believers who shut their mouth and don't say a word That's how it's being played. That's why we're losing the culture war, or I've lost it, because the sin of silence. You have seen them, and you know of these, these Christians that you're aware of, but they never tell you they're a Christian. They go to work, and no one at work knows they're a Christian. No one. Their family doesn't even know sometimes. They're secret. Now, we understand in third world countries, you claim to be a Christian in Iran, guess what's going to happen to you, right? I mean, we get that. But in America, what are you afraid of? Someone calling you a hater, a bigot? Someone calling you a religious bigot or whatever it is, intolerant, hateful? But yet, we are self-editing because the culture is putting pressure on it that if we take a stand for Jesus and say something that he would say, we know we're going to get a pushback. And so what a lot of Christians are starting to do is self-edit themselves and simply remain silent. Folks, that's dangerous. Here's the issue we have to pass on. We have to tell our kids and grandkids, you must speak out. You must tell the truth. Don't sit there and be silent. That's what they were doing. Look at the warning Jesus gave us. This next passage, Matthew 10, 32. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, 
him will I also confess before my Father who is in heaven. And the opposite is true, and he'll give another warning in another passage. If you are ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of you. This is for believers. This is not about unbelievers. I'm sorry, Calvinism has totally destroyed the interpretation of gospels and the New Testament many times. This phrase, they link it to salvation. It's not about salvation. It is a discipleship issue. And Jesus is telling you and I, if you're embarrassed of me and my words, and you won't say what the truth is to these people, I'm going to be embarrassed of you before my father. That's scary, guys. I don't want Jesus to be embarrassed of me because I was embarrassed of him. But it's happening. In Romans 10, 9 through 13, I want you to see this real quick. And this is a famous passage that gets misinterpreted many times. It says in verse 9 that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, most interpret this and they, they do the, a synonymous link between confession and then um, believe in your heart. And they, they sandwich the two and say, ah, he's speaking synonymously. We have to confess Jesus and then believe. Look, folks, I'm gonna tell you something about salvation real quick, and you all understand this. We're saved by faith alone, right? Faith alone. If you add confession to faith alone, you're adding a work. You have to understand, do not bridge this over and link it because Paul will then delineate this in verse 10. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness. So, so now he's clearing it up and he's given the order salutis in the passage in verse 10. The order salutis is this, believe in your heart and you will be justified. That's the idea of unto righteousness, you'll be justified. Second, and with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Eternal life? No. He's talking about deliverance in the believer's life. Temporal deliverance. He's separating the two out. For the scriptures say, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the uh, same Lord's rich over all to all who call upon him. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now he's delineating in verse 13. And he'll go into 14 and 15 and say... How will, they, how will they call on him if they don't believe? So the order salutis is believe first, Paul, Paul gets the order right, and then confession second in discipleship or in sanctification. Don't blend the two. And so with Paul doing that and, under, and us trying to understand that, who is he talking to in the text? He's talking to Israel. At that time, Israel has to make this confession publicly. So when you think about Romans 9, 10, and 11, think about this. Romans 9, past. Romans 10, present. Romans 11, future. If you understand that pericope, you'll understand those three passages. Okay, what's the point in this? It's an admonition that it's very serious. We have to publicly identify with Jesus. Again, this doesn't mean, you know, wearing a shirt or a bumper sticker on our car. It's way more than that. It's that everywhere we go, people identify us as Christians by what we say, by what things we hold to, by the values we hold. And we must be like the Jews back then who did publicly identify with the Messiah and lost everything. Now, for instance, Nicodemus. I'm, I think I might have told you about Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a wealthy ruler. As you know, he came to the Messiah in, in year one, and him and the Messiah talked about being born again. Nicodemus took three and a half years to figure this all out and unravel it in his own mind from the Judaism that he had been taught. By the end of it, we see that Nicodemus believes in Messiah and that he even, him and Joseph of Arimathea take the body of the Lord and wrap it and bury the body of the Lord. When he did that, 
That was his public confession. The minute Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea did that, you know what happened to Nicodemus? They cut him off. Church historians, when they look back in church writings about Nicodemus, Nicodemus lost everything. He lost his money and Nicodemus died as a pauper because of publicly identifying with Jesus. Guys, I don't know where it'll take you. I don't know what pressure you're going to have, but it might cost you your job. It might cost you your pension. It might cost you a seat at the table, so to speak, at the family dinner. It might cost you something to publicly identify with the Lord, but this is what has to be taught to the next generation. Second thing about this, confession or calling upon the name of the Lord refers to not being indifferent to submitting and obeying the Lord in discipleship. Not being indifferent or obeying the Lord. What do you mean by this? The problem we're starting to see now is that a lot of Christians are indifferent to to submission of the Lord and obedience. How do I know? We start seeing people drift in their behavior and things that were not allowed 10 years ago, five years ago, are now acceptable in Christianity. And it's not. You're saying, what's happening? Because people are drifting. People are moving away. Look at Revelation 3, 2 through 5, and it gives us warning about this. He says, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. He's talking about believers. Their works, they started them, but they don't finish them. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Repent of this, what they're up to. Therefore, if you will not watch, if this is the key phrase. If you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I come upon you. Let me show you a picture to understand that phrase. I think I've explained this one time before, but let me explain this. It's kind of a bad picture, but I think it, you'll, you'll get, catch it here. When believers decide not to be obedient, not to submit to the scriptures, they fall asleep, spiritually speaking. They're not watching. Part of watching, according to Matthew 24, um, and you can look at verses uh, 40, uh, 45 on, he'll talk about who is a faithful believer, who is a faithful watcher, and it's those who obey, those who are faithful to the Lord. He says, That kind of person is watchful. But those who are not obedient, they fall asleep. Now, the phrase is, I will come upon you as a thief, is a phrase referring to the high priest. Most people think that, okay, he's talking about a thief coming in the night, and he is. But that that phrase of a thief coming in the night and stealing your stuff was actually put on the high priest. And that was a name given to the high priest. What do you mean? Well, during the night, they had the night watch. And the priests were all, uh, other priests on watch were scattered through the temple area and they had to make sure the altar of fire didn't go out and the altar of incense didn't go out. It had to keep burning. The menorah had to keep burning. So there was flames that they had to keep stoking. The high priest would occasionally do a surprise visit and he would come in there at night and he would make sure that all the priests were doing their duties and that they were awake. If he found a priest sleeping that had fallen asleep, that was in charge of the altar or the menorah or wherever, and he was sleeping, do you know what the high priest would do? He would get a torch and light the dude's cloak on fire. No joke, man. He would light him on fire. And the priests were wearing linen, so that thing probably went up in flames pretty quick. Do you know what would happen if you were asleep and he lit you on fire? The first thing you do would strip off the robe that you had on. And a lot of the guys who got caught by the high priest would run out of the temple nude because they had to strip off all their stuff because it was on fire. That is the idea of being caught naked by Jesus is that if you're asleep, and you're caught naked, which means I'm not obeying, I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do, and he catches you that way, you will have no rewards. 
you will be nude or naked in front of him when he sets the fire of the bema seat upon your works to be burned up. You will have nothing left. That's where the idea comes from. And so he tells Sardis, back to that, you have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. They shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. So there's a promise about this, to keep watch and to do what you're supposed to do. And these white garments are not garments of salvation. Revelation 19.8 points out, And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. These are rewards. But notice this, and this is where I want to take you. It's connected to confession, disobedience. Revelation 3, 5. And I will not blot out his name out of the, from the book of life. That's a litote, which means um, not only am I not going to uh, blot you out, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. You see the connection? What did he say already in the gospels? If you confess me, I will confess you before my father. So let's interpret what he's saying. By obeying me and doing everything I tell you to do is your confession as well. And if you do that, I will also confess before my father you. So this idea of publicly identifying with the Messiah, but also obeying goes hand in hand. But let me give you a third thing, a third application to this about calling on the name of the Lord, confessing him. The third one is to directly appeal to Jesus' lordship, that he is Yahweh, he has the divine power, and the fact that he can hear us since he is alive, he's raised from the dead, obviously, for needed deliverance from the wrath of God. Really? Now, that's a long one, and I want you to take it in. Needed deliverance from the wrath of God. Wait a second, I thought I'm, I'm away from all that wrath. Yeah, just hold on. You are, in one sense, you are. Christ has taken the wrath of God. But we're talking about temporal wrath, not eternal wrath, temporal wrath. I'll show you in just a bit, but let me show you in the life of Israel what that meant, okay? In this passage, as you'll see, he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather you, your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, I, your house is left to you desolate. This is a future prediction that, is, that uh, Jerusalem and the temple are gonna be destroyed. For I say to you, you shall not see me no more till you say or confess or call upon, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a quote from Psalm 118. So in Israel's life, he has told them, you will not see me physically anymore until you call upon me, Hosanna, come save us. Save us from what? Temporal wrath. Okay, you gotta be saved first before you can state that, okay? And I know what you're saying, okay? Again, you're referring to Israel, 70 AD, Brandon. We're not in that time frame. We're in time frame now. Yeah, I know. So what temporal wrath could we possibly have to endure? It's Romans 1, 18. Do you remember Romans 1, 18? Read this carefully. Read this, please. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against what? All ungodliness is a noun. Did he say ungodly? No, ungodliness. So question, can a believer perpetrate ungodliness? Yes, they can. And unrighteousness, now and again, of men. So human beings. So ungodliness and unrighteousness Question, obviously, you know, unbelievers can do unrighteousness and ungodliness, but can believers do unrighteousness and ungodliness? Of course. That's why all the warnings in the New Testament are about us obeying and doing what we need to do. Who suppress the truth 
in unrighteousness. Oh, mercy. Well, Brandon, I thought Romans 1 was just simply for unbelievers. No, read it very carefully. It is saying, it is very possible, because it's referring to all human beings, that if a believer or an unbeliever starts suppressing the truth, they will be giving the wrath of God for doing that. Now, how will that wrath of God be revealed on their lives? Well, if you read Romans 1, he will tell you. He gives several things that happen, and you know it. Number one, they become futile in their thoughts. Two, hearts being darkened. Three, they become fools. Four, they have a debased mind. And five, they are given over to sin. Now, we usually interpret that passage as unbelievers, but if you read it carefully, he's saying anybody who suppresses truth gets these. Oh my. Oh my. Is it possible for a believer to have a debased mind? Absolutely. Is it possible for a believer to have a foolish mind? Of course. Is it possible for a believer to be given over to sin? Of course. We see it all the time. Hence, that that thing that they're experiencing, is that darkening of a heart, is a result of suppressing the truth. Oh, and do believers suppress the truth? Of course they do. Hence, the solution for anybody who is now experiencing that Romans 1 wrath because of suppressing the truth. What is another word for, not suppr- for suppressing the truth? Not confessing, not identifying with the Messiah, not saying what we should say, not, not publicly telling people the truth is a suppression of the truth. So you're telling me, Brandon, that the sin of silence is suppression of the truth? Of course it is. You mean that the sin of silence is not confessing or calling upon the name of the Lord? Of course it is. And then hence you will receive the judgment unto yourself for suppressing that truth and things will start happening to you spiritually. Well, what's the solution? Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved from temporal wrath. If you're in that condition, you must call on Jesus, who is Yahweh, who has that power, who is alive, and here's your prayer requests, and tell him and ask him to deliver you from this and then repent of that. And that stops everything if you will do that, that he promises that. But folks... A lot of people are just rolling in life, pretending that what they're doing by remaining silent in this age that we live in, they think they're actually helping the cause. And what they're doing is they're actually hurting themselves because of the Romans 1 issue. I know that's a lot to swallow. I know that's a lot there. But this is what that phrase means. It is serious business. And that is what we need to communicate to our kids and pass that on. You have to speak out. You have to start saying things. You have to say, this is right and this is wrong. And you have to be willing to live with those ramifications with your life. And you will be capped. You will hit the ceiling at your job. You will be called and vilified every name in the book. If they did it to Jesus, they're gonna do it to you, right? Let me show you how important this is. Let me show you this picture. Jump to Jonathan Edwards and and, uh, Max Jukes. This is Jonathan Edwards. You You might recall him, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, that famous sermon, okay? Uh, Preached uh, fire and brimstone and got a lot of people saved, by the way. Um, They did a study on him and this guy lived at kind of the same time, Max Jukes. Okay, Max Jukes was put in jail and he, he cost a lot of people a lot of problems and cost the state a lot of money. 
But uh, they have done some studies on him and studies on Jonathan Edwards, and they studied their family lineage. And I want you to see the difference between the two. Jonathan Edwards is on this one side, and Max Jukes is on the other. One's a criminal, one's a pastor, okay? In Jonathan Edwards' line, he had 13 college presidents, 65 college professors, 75 military officers, 80 public servants, 60 authors, 60 doctors, 30 judges, 100 pastors, 100 lawyers, 3 senators, a vice president. Just from his lineage. Max Jukes, criminal. 310 died as paupers. 150 criminals. 7 murderers. 100 plus drunks. 190 prostitutes all came from one guy. Do you see how important it is to pass on this family lineage of Christianity and the difference it does make? You may never see it in your time, but in the children's time, grandchildren's time, how important that is. And in this passage, the big issue is not only just to have our kids saved, but that they publicly identify with Jesus. Think about if we send our kids to the colleges and universities, are they prepared to publicly identify with Jesus in the college university settings? Or will they commit the sin of silence and just shut their mouth? You see what I'm saying? That's where the rubber meets the road. We have to tell our kids, you must confess him as they were doing in Genesis chapter 4. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times, and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.